listening to ATN Perspectives. Welcome to ATN Perspectives. I'm your host, Luke Sheehy, the Executive Director of the Australian Technology Network of Universities. I'm excited for this week's Election Watch podcast as I'm joined by Professor Carol Bond. Carol is Senior Lecturer in Management at RMIT University's College of Business and Law. Carol is also Chief Investigator for the Future Fuels CRC and a Research Fellow with the Sustainable Hydrogen Energy Laboratory at RMIT. So it should give no one any surprise that today I've invited Carol along to talk about energy and the climate. A very warm welcome to you, Carol. Thank you very much, Luke. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. We are delighted to have you here. Climate change is, to coin the phrase of a former Prime Minister, the great moral challenge of our time. Yes. I don't think anyone that's listening will disagree. It is an important topic politically, but it is important socially, it's important economically, and of course, it's important to ensure our survival on this wonderful planet. Yes. It is an unbelievably complex and politically charged issue, and I would contrast what we saw in the 2019 campaign, Labor Party with a more ambitious target than this time around. A caravan of courage from the Green Movement upsetting people on the coast communities of central Queensland. A Liberal Party happy to exploit the Labor Party's climate change policies for both economic and a commitment to coal. Fast forward today, more modest policies from the Labor Party. I'm not quite sure where we're sitting with the modern-day Liberal National Coalition because there is huge divides within the National Party and the Liberal Party in Australia. We have Matt Canavan, Senator for Queensland, from what we would describe as the National Party federally, but the LNP in Queensland, saying that net zero is dead. We have inner urban Liberals like Josh Frydenberg, Tim Wilson, Dave Sharma, you know, hugging the idea of working towards a solution for climate change from the Liberal Party's point of view. And then we have the rise of the teal independence threatening traditional Liberals in blue ribbon seats because of their commitment to climate change and other important issues. It is messy. I don't know if it's got any less messy, Carol. So (laughs) thank you for joining us in this conversation. Hopefully we can unpack some of the complexity around that and why we're leaning certain ways politically. From your point of view, where are we sitting? Where People are already voting. We're a week or so from the election day. What are the major parties telling us about climate change? And then let's have a chat about what we need to do as a country and what we need to do as a global community. So big question for you, but uh, tell us what's happening in the campaign. Sure. So what I have seen in the campaign so far is, as you rightly noted, that the Labour Party has a slightly less ambitious target than they did in the 2019 campaign. And that is perhaps sensible, given the feedback they've had from voters. It's not tremendously off the mark in terms of what they've been talking about for the last little while, even before the campaign. The Liberal National Party, uh, the coalition, has been really looking backwards towards a prior era of Australian energy use. And that's a little bit bewildering if you look at it on the surface, like why are they saying we can't talk about 2030 targets, we can only talk about 2050, when everybody knows that we can't get to 2050 without passing through 2030. And we need to have hit some major targets by that point. The International Energy Agency and all the major international energy players all know that 2030 is the big stepping stone that we need to land on before that. Even our neighbor to the north, Singapore, has a Singapore Green 2030 plan, which has a very ambitious 
decarbonization plan to help make a difference where they can as well. So the thing I would like to point out, however, is that regardless of the rhetoric, whether you as labor or the coalition, there is billions with a B, billions of dollars worth of investment that the Australian federal and state and territory governments have put into decarbonizing Australia's energy mix. So on one hand, some of the parties are saying we're not very keen on meeting those 2030 targets. And on the other hand, they're investing so heavily in the industry right now and into research that actually, if you look at what they're doing rather than what they're saying, there's a lot more reason for hope. Well, I think that's kind of the mantra for political junkies like myself and those (laughs) potentially listening is you have messaging, which is quite targeted, right? It's targeted to appeal to broad audiences. I mean, governing parties have to win seats from right across different states and territories. And those of you who watch US politics know that there are red states and blue states. There are red seats and blue seats in Australia, and then there's swing seats. So these messages are highly calibrated, highly tested. And the major leaders, the presidential style campaigns we have, they stick to them. But I think it's great that you're actually pointing out there's more to it. Yeah. I want to just ask you, and it might come as quite a simple question, but I think what happens in in the climate debate around an election time is we get very caught up in almost like a scorecard, right? One party's going to do this for a target and the other party's going to do that, but not as well. And the other party, you know, that might not be able to govern like the Greens or the Teal Independents are calling for something unbelievably higher. But you've also said that things are actually happening. So can we unpack that a little bit? You know, what do these targets mean? We think about things like the carbon price, the carbon tax from now 10 years ago. That was designed around, I think, from my memory, focused on electricity emissions. What does it mean to have a target? Are we transitioning all industries? You know, are things like electric cars important? For the people listening that don't know that much about the policy, from your point of view, Carol, how can we explain it a bit more and and then talk about what we probably need to do as a country, regardless of who wins? So the targets, you know, have been agreed upon internationally at what some of you may remember is uh, the Committee of the Parties, or COP, which is when all the major governments of the world got together in Paris at the Palace of Versailles and spent uh, some very painful long sessions trying to come up with what they agreed was a carbon target of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in terms of the amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So that was in 2015. Uh, And that built on work in Tokyo and work in Brazil prior to that point. So it's not like the governments of the world haven't been talking about this for a very long time. When Australia says that they're a signatory to this agreement, it means that they will be taking action towards meeting the targets set at the Paris Agreement in 2015. Right now, from what I see, both parties, major parties, excepting the Greens and the Teal Independents, are not quite committed to meeting the 2030 targets that are required for the 2050 achievement of the 1.5 degree centigrade rise of temperature of the planet. In fact, right now, we're pretty much on course to, if we do business as usual, we do incremental change, we're probably going to have a 3.5 centigrade temperature rise, which is going to be catastrophic for the planet and for viable human life. So we do need to take action rather quickly. It's going to be difficult. Nobody has all the answers. I'm very convinced that the people at the local level, businesses at the local level, the governments at the local level have the most impact to make on climate change. Um, Because as we know, with the challenges of federalism, where each state and territory has their own regulations, they have their own legislation, they have their own approach to how to deal with energy. Yes, it is overseen by AEMO and other, uh, other national bodies, 
uh, to make sure the prices are fair, whatever. But if you really think about it, people need to make big changes. And I'm not talking about domestic consumption. I'm not talking about people who are putting solar panels on their roofs or driving electric cars. I'm talking about the industrial players. 67% of all energy used is by businesses. 67%. And that's where we really need to see change. We need the business community to start shifting the way they produce their goods and services in order to decarbonize. And that's something the government can facilitate in terms of regulation and legislation. And that's where I think you should pay attention to your political candidates, because if they say they're going to support the legislation, if they're going to have robust regulation, that's a very good sign. Whether or not they meet this target or that is pretty much going to be up to the business community about whether or not they are able to pivot fast enough. And of course, we've heard a lot from the business community who have strongly backed bipartisan approaches to this, which makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, Labor Party Labor leader Anthony Albanese is spruiking the fact that his policy has the backing of the Business Council and other business peak groups. It's fascinating that two thirds of all of those emissions are still coming from business. So we need to focus on that. I mean, I guess the interesting thing about free market economies and businesses is they can move pretty much in their own direction, bar for, you know, restrictive regulation. What's Australian business doing already and what's international business doing already, almost in spite of lack of ambition from governments? Sure. Well, as you know, the business sector is, is quite large and it's, it's hard to have a, you know, paint a very broad brush. But what I am seeing in Australia is I am seeing particular consulting firms, firms that provide professional services, they're working very hard to diminish their carbon footprint. It's a selling point for them against their competitors. They have sustainability consultants in their businesses that can help other companies learn how to decarbonize. Uh, so we see, you know, the services industry doing a very good job. Job. We're looking at the transportation, the heavy haulage trucks and shipping. They're trying to move to hydrogen as fuel for the long distance shipping and trucking. That's achievable. The technology exists. It's already being trialed in California. And there's plans to trial the, the trucks and the shipping here in Australia within the next five years. So that's very exciting. Um, there's going to be like a superhighway between Brisbane and, and Sydney where the trucks can just replace hydrogen fuel cell batteries along the way. And you can go 600 kilometers on one charge, which is extraordinary. The only thing you really have to worry about is the OHS for the drivers who may not want to drive all at one go. It's really amazing when you realize you're living in the future. I mean, technology already is just absolutely transformational in you know in terms of having a smartphone and the way we connect with each other. But these technological transformations are awe-inspiring. Of course, universities play a central role in the development of that technology from dreaming up an idea, testing it, getting it closer to market and working with industry partners to test it and, and bring it into the market and those impacts. I wonder if I come back to a few kind of simple ideas that I think gets lost in an election campaign is... We know that business in Australia is moving. We've had state governments that, of course, moved more ambitiously than the federal government over time. We've had pockets of excellence, particularly during the last Labor government in Canberra, where there was a price on carbon in that second term, which did drive down emissions in Australia. But there's a lot of fear out there, and there's a lot of fear about people and jobs and economic livelihoods. And I'm wondering, Carol, if you might like to unpack some of those things. The question I have is, can we decarbonise Australia without losing jobs, 
people like the Labor Party, the Teal Independents, the Greens and others, are they right when they say it's an opportunity to grow jobs? In fact, I've heard Liberals say this as well. So is there really this great economic opportunity from decarbonisation out there? And you've talked about hydrogen and we know that's a new industry, but are you as excited as others about this being an opportunity for new jobs and new livelihoods to be created? Absolutely. I see this as the kind of gold-plated opportunity to you know chant the mantra, jobs, 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 because there are so many jobs that are coming online. And it's not just for the technical and the engineers, it's for the business community that needs to manage these big projects and develop new ways of delivering you know energy to homes and businesses. For example, most people don't know the renewables industry, so that's energy, renewables energy, employs as many people as the mining sector. That's unbelievable. Right there. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, right? But it's true. And so the, the flow-on effects from those people spending in the community and making their investments, et cetera, and there's not enough people working in renewables. We also need people who are working in biofuels. Um, so that takes the raw sewerage or agricultural waste and turns it into energy. We have you know, hydrogen, of course. We still have an active industry in uh, liquid natural gas, uh, which will, again, be blended with hydrogen. And for, for those of you who don't know, Australia already had hydrogen 50 years ago in its energy mix. It comprised 50% of Australia's energy mix in the pipelines 50 years ago. So it's not like we haven't done this before and done it successfully. But we do need people who are skilled or willing to be trained to be the pipe fitters, be the technical experts to make sure it's all done safely because Australia has one of the best records in the world of taking care of its workers. And that's a great point and a great shout out, obviously, to all major parties and all parties running for this election. You know, ATN only this week got a partnership in a funding announcement by the coalition to skill up workers for the digital economy. But let's uh, have another shout out to both parties around giving ATN universities and others the opportunity to skill up workers for the energy revolution that's happening. Hydrogen, oh my God, 50 years. I cannot, I, I can't believe we've had it in, uh, in our energy mix for 50 years. I've talked about this on and off with friends and clever people and scientists and researchers for a long time. What I heard the other day, and it fascinated me, and forgive me for not knowing exactly what it means, I've heard green hydrogen, I've heard blue hydrogen, I've heard brown hydrogen. You know, what does it mean? And what's the opportunity for Australia in that exciting energy opportunity? And can we export this if we get it right? Absolutely. Luke, this is one of the the things that makes me happy uh, on a daily basis is thinking about hydrogen and the opportunities it presents. So hydrogen is made by one of two processes, either by steam methane reforming, where um, you take a lot of hot steam and separate out molecules from either liquid natural gas or from coal to turn it into hydrogen. So you have a molecule which has an H somewhere in there and you need to liberate that H so that we can capture it and use it as pure hydrogen. That's brown or gray hydrogen, so it's coming from a fossil fuel. It becomes transformed into blue hydrogen when you capture, carbon capture, and store the emissions from that process. Okay? Now, there's one caveat there. Australia does not have the carbon capture and storage technology nailed yet. They're still working on it. They've been working on it for 25 years. And certainly, it's a contentious issue because people feel very passionately about it. But that's the only way to, you know, have kind of cleaner hydrogen from fossil fuels is to use that carbon capture and storage technology in development. Green hydrogen, and this is the one I think your listeners are going to love. You know, politicians from all stripes and colors 
which should love this is the holy grail of, of energy so you have your wind energy you have your solar energy you produce way too much during the day when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing and what do you do at night right okay well like south australia has put in a whole bunch of power wall batteries to store that and then redeploy it as needed but you can use hydrogen as a battery storage you can actually store that energy and unlike high tension power lines if you can use the storage of the pipelines you can move that hydrogen with that energy anywhere you need it to be deployed anywhere theoretically victoria could export to new south wales queensland or south australia it's absolutely phenomenal and the thing that that your readers or your listeners may not know about as well is that victoria has the hydrogen energy supply chain in Gippsland in the Latrobe Valley. And they are making brown hydrogen right now. They're looking to make it blue. They're putting it on a ship, a specially made ship, and transporting that hydrogen as an export commodity to Kobe, Japan, to fuel their hydrogen-powered buses. This is an absolute game changer. It's an absolute game changer. And I have absolutely no doubt then that uh, that's driving jobs in the Latrobe Valley, of course, you know. Absolutely. As a child, having spent time in the Latrobe Valley, um, you know, we have a lot of brown coal in, in Victoria, this part of the world, and I know we've sold on the benefits of our high-quality black coal further north and other parts of the country. Carbon capture is going to be interesting. Thank you, I must say, Carol, for explaining the differences between brown, blue, and green hydrogen. I'm going to have that locked in now and know all about it and pretend I'm much smarter than I am when I talk to my friends about it. So hydrogen used then as an energy source, um, what emissions does it have at all? I mean, there's obviously in the production, and we've talked a little bit about that, and there's, you know, technology will emerge, I'm sure, that will help us uh, in the in the production side. What about on the use side of the use of hydrogen? What, is there anything that happens that could potentially damage the environment and the use of the, that hydrogen power? So far, no. So I, I did not quite get around to explaining the second part of how hydrogen can be created is through electrolysis which is where you take a kind of a container of water and you run electricity through it and separate the oxygen atoms from the hydrogen atoms. So when you do that, the only byproduct in the production of hydrogen in that way, and that's with the renewables uh, sources, is water. Similarly, when you take that pure hydrogen and you put it in a fuel cell in your car or a truck or a ship or a train, and it's not internal combustion engine, right? You're creating electricity for that particular vehicle to move. And as that's being kind of depleted, as it's being used, the only byproduct is water vapor. Incredible. That's it. It's absolutely carbon neutral. Unbelievable. I've heard stories that storage is an issue, but I assume like carbon capture and storage, that the storage of hydrogen technology is developing at a, at a rapid rate and people like yourself and others across our wonderful universities are making a positive contribution to that? Absolutely. There are research groups in every single major university that are working on this hydrogen equation, also working on the biofuels, also working on the carbon capture and storage. In fact, RMIT University has a very clever set of uh, chemists who has figured out how to remove carbon from the air. And that is going to be another game changer. So it's and it's even more effective than the carbon capture and storage solution. So don't be discouraged if something hasn't worked. There's 
plenty of clever people working very determinedly to make sure that we get the answers to this equation right. Yeah, and look, I, it's one of the great joys of my life that I get to talk to people like yourself and others and translate that to other people uh, in other parts and sectors of our community, right, and tell them this exciting thing. I am so awe-inspired by the energy transformation that's happening and in spite sometimes of political leadership in this country and, of course, internationally. There's a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we run out of time, of course. Firstly, I, I noted this leaders' debate we had, which is, I don't know if you quite call it a debate, it's very shouty. There's one moment in the debate that I thought was interesting, and a Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, was talking about his policy, and there was quite a lot around this issue of the electricity grid. There was a 20-something billion dollar investment in the grid and the hardware that's required to transport energy. And then, of course, the Prime Minister pounced on this and we had some discussions afterwards. Is that a really important part of the transformation that's required? If we're changing the way we create energy, of course, in our own homes and using batteries and electric cars, is that type of investment, whilst probably mundane for an election campaign, critical to the success of our energy transformation? Absolutely, Luke. It's very hard to kind of wrap your head around the scale of the change that needs to happen and the scale of the investment. You just start adding zeros after numbers and, and it just becomes kind of a silly, unimaginable number very quickly. We really need to invest in infrastructure. I know that in Victoria and South Australia, New South Wales in particular, the electricity infrastructure is no longer fit for purpose. So for example, uh, when people are generating electricity off of uh, solar photovoltaic cells and trying to sell it back to the grid, the grid was not designed to take energy back. It was designed to take energy to you. And so there's quite a lot of upgrading of the entire system that needs to happen. But it's not an either-or situation. You know, some people say, let's electrify everything. And that's not achievable because you can't smelt steel with electricity. You can't create glass or concrete there's a number of heavy industry processes that need something else. But we do need the electricity and we do need the infrastructure. And that's going to mean we're going to need mining as well because we need the raw materials out of the ground. Yes, and I've heard some really more intelligent contributions about the role of ongoing mining industries to get the essential minerals and resources we need to create these sophisticated environments in order to let things like energy transformation happen. Carol, I'm not sure if you remember and were a fan, but I certainly was many, many years ago. I was probably very young of the film series Back to the Future, right? And remember in 1985, Marty McFly then goes forward to, I think, what was seen as 2015. Yeah. And they were on hoverboards and they were flying cars and none of these things happened. But um, I wonder, you know, this is such an exciting area where we've, we cast forward to what could be. If you and I were to write something for the, uh, 30 years from now, what will we see in a modern Australia, modern global economy and society in terms of energy? What will be different? That's a great one. Or will it be just all made up like, like it was uh, with Back to the Future? I'll take you back even further. So many of you will have known about the original science fiction writer, Jules Verne, back in the 1800s, and he wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And his submarine at that point was powered by hydrogen, right? It was, you know, his, his, his dream and, and lo and behold, Australia's investing in hydrogen-powered submarines now. So that's kind of where we're going. What I, I would love to see is an energy sector that actually allows us to do a better job caring for the planet and for 
the people on the planet. Uh, we don't have to have an energy future that is built on the last hundred years of fossil fuel exploitation. You know, before that, for hundreds of thousands, millions of years, there was no fossil fuel use. And it doesn't have to be that way in the future either. And if we can still live the lives that we enjoy, there's just new ways to think about it. Human beings are wonderful. And, and if you give them a challenge, they'll rise to it. I really believe in that. And I think the solutions that are being developed right now are going to make our future cause for hope. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to finish this podcast because what an optimistic way to think about the world. And I'm absolutely thrilled that people like Professor Carol Bond is in our universities at RMIT as part of ATN working on these amazing things that will shape our future. Carol, thank you so much for joining us on ATN Perspectives and thank you for your insights on this really amazing topic. I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thanks so much, Luke, and all the best. Please subscribe to the ATN Perspectives podcasts via all channels like Spotify, Google and Apple.